Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, you know, Catherine, Steve, and Marissa are very capable pastors in our conference. And so um, I hope you know you're blessed to have them. I hope you know that um, that's a wonderful thing to come to church. And the conference is very blessed to have this congregation as a part of its life. And uh, you're well known. I don't, know, I don't know that you know that. But before I came, when I was living in Virginia, I knew about Trinity United Methodist Church in Gainesville. And so you're a church that others look to, and I, I hope you have a sense of both um, encouragement in that, but also that, that sense of responsibility that comes when you're a source of encouragement to other congregations. Um, I served a church like that at one time and, and always loved both aspects of that. And now, uh, as we move into the sermon, uh, I wonder if you would pray for me and with me for a moment. Lord, um, in worship, in song, in prayer, in silence, <clears throat> there's a a moment that happens, or a, just a service sometimes that happens, where you're speaking to us. We carry all the things of our lives in this room, and we come here intentionally to lay them before you. And more than anything else, we pray that you will show up. And we know the scripture tells us that you are already in all places, in all times, and yet what we long for is the thought that you spoke to us, each one and that you spoke to us collectively as a community. So come, Holy Spirit, be present in the time of the preaching, that this might be a time used by you in those ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, I read a story in the paper, a dog story. I don't know about you, I love dog stories. Anybody have a good dog? Anybody own a good dog? Anybody own the best dog in the world? I, yeah, okay. So we all have that dog, right? And uh, this was a story about a man who found himself, his name was Brian, and his dog's name was Sophie. And Brian was standing by his bed, and he suddenly fell between the bed and the wall. You know what a tight space that can be sometimes in a room? And it was in Brian's room. And he could not get up, and he couldn't figure out why he couldn't get up. And he... He had a hand that was free and he was able to move that hand and he said as he lay there wondering what was happening, suddenly he felt on his face a big tongue and it was his hundred pound German shepherd. Think about that number for a second, a hundred pound German shepherd, Sophie, who was whimpering. So he knew something was wrong and Sophie knew something was wrong and he couldn't move and he remembered that about 15 feet away on a dresser across the room, there was a cell phone. And if he could get to that dresser, he thought he could call for help, but he, he couldn't move. And so he reached up, and as Sophie was, was panting and whining, he grabbed Sophie's collar, and she instinctively began to back up. And as she backed up, she literally pulled him free of being wedged between the wall and the bed. And slowly, movement by movement, Sophie kept pulling him back and pulling him back until he finally got in front of that dresser and he reached up and grabbed the phone and that few hours later, it was night by this time, and a few hours later he was in a hospital room when a doctor entered with his chart and said, Brian, you've had a stroke and I understand that your dog helped set you free. He said, yeah, that's true. He was able to speak. That was good. And he said, I want you to know that if that dog had not have done that, uh, you might not be alive. Now, Sophie had only been with him for a year. Sophie had been down the street at an animal shelter. 
<clears throat> and Brian had been in the animal shelter and he had seen Sophie in a pen, Sophie looking kind of sad, as dogs will. And a way that we might say it is this, in love, Brian took Sophie into his home and began to care for him and care for her and feed her and, and just enjoy a relationship with a great dog. And in love, Sophie allowed Brian to grab his collar, her collar, and just pull back, back, back until Brian was freed. And what I want you to observe is just the nature of love. Love is this powerful force that, that really changes things. It changes our stories. It changes our outcomes. It changes what happens in our lives. And we don't always get a dog that saves our life, but sometimes we do. You've been in this sermon series on brave faith. Some of you have read the book that I wrote about that. I wrote it during the pandemic. And when, during a time when I thought it would be helpful for me to think about um, what is courage. Because I, I, I realized early in the pandemic it was going to be long, not short. And I began to think, how have people shown courage in periods of time where they had to be brave for a long period? And I, began, I told somebody this morning, I began to listen on the internet to speeches of Winston Churchill during World War II, because I thought the English started that war about 37. They didn't end it till 45. Like, how did they do that? How do we do bravery over extended seasons? How do we remain courage, not just in the right moment of time, but in all times? And I think Jesus is the best example of that. As a pastor, I regularly experience people doing courageous things. I saw bravery. I saw courage. And some of it came in just weird little moments. I was talking to a high school senior one time, and I asked him, I said, how did you get into this church? He said, well, it happened in middle school. He said, you know, we moved to this area when I was in the eighth grade. He said, that's the worst year to move because everybody in middle school is established by the time you get to the eighth grade. You don't, you don't have anybody. <clears throat> and because you don't have anybody, he said, I showed up on the first day of school and I went to the cafeteria. He said, I knew it was going to be the worst part of my day. I went to the cafeteria and I sat at the seat at the end of the table. And he said, there were people on that end of the table, but then me, I was sitting here. And he said, I looked around the room and everybody had somebody except me. Do you remember the eighth grade? He said, as I'm sitting there eating my lunch, I'm kind of looking around, checking things out. And he said, there's a group of guys one table over on the far end. And he said, there's one guy who's facing me who keeps looking at me. And he said, I just thought, this is bad news. Like, this guy keeps looking at me. And he said, I just thought, he is, like, something bad is going to happen. And he said, finally, that guy goes, hey, are you by yourself? And he said, I looked around and said, yeah, I'm by myself. And then they said, the guy got up and walked over and he said, I was really nervous. And as he walked over, he looked at me and he said, hey, would you like to come sit with us? And he said, he actually helped me pick up my stuff and walk over and he put me at a seat. And then he said, these guys all introduced themselves. And I told them my name. And he said, they, we just started talking. And he said, I realized that some of them were in my classes. And then I realized that, that I live not far from a couple of those guys. And he said, 
I got, he said, to answer your question, I got to this church because as we were at that lunch table, I realized these guys all went to the same church together. And one day, they invited me. And when they invited me, my family came, and before I knew it, this was our church. Now, let me ask you something. The guy that was sitting over here who looks up at the guy who's sitting by himself and issues an invitation, brave, not brave, quick. Brave or not brave? What do you think? I think it's brave. Because they're in the eighth grade. And what is not fearful in the eighth grade? I mean, seriously, that's my memory of it. It's just fraught with complexity. I saw brave people all the time as a pastor. I know of a family who had a daughter who, when she was about 19, 20 years old, started seeing a highly dysfunctional guy. A guy who had an amazing ability to make her feel cherished on the one hand and in danger of losing him all the time. He just sucked, he would pull her in and push her out, pull her in and push her out, back and forth. And one day she came home and said, Mom, Dad, I got a problem, I'm pregnant. And they thought, oh my goodness. He was in her life for three years and that relationship produced not one but two grandchildren. And thankfully, I mean, I'm a bishop saying this, thankfully they were never married so they never had to deal with the legality of marriage because he was incredibly dysfunctional and harming to her. And she, in a brave moment, had to one day say, no more, no more, I am done with you. But the, the thing I observed more than that, I observed this family and I observed those parents, the grandparents, say to the, each other and say to her, what are we gonna do now? Because there were moments where just as the woman had to say to this young man, you're done, there were moments where these parents were ready to say to their daughter, we're done. Have you ever been there? Anybody ever been there? But there were these grandchildren. There were these babies. And because of these babies, and because it was their daughter, instead of saying, you're out, they said, how can we help you do this? And today, well, first, let me ask you this. Brave, not brave. I think that's brave. Because, friends, they had to talk about things they didn't want to talk about. They had to do work together they didn't want to do. There were pastors and counselors. They were, there was a social worker. There were just all kinds of legalities and issues to figure all that out. Brave. About six months ago, she got a promotion at work. She's actually very skilled and gifted with older people. And she is in an apartment now that she is paying for with her job. And he is long gone. And she's figuring out how to raise two children. And every day, those grandparents are part of that experience. Not what they thought. They, they were just entering that season, you know, that season where it's like, we love our kids and they're gone. 
right? We, love, we loved our life, but we get this new season. And every day, there are these little people running around, and what they'd say is, that decision, that brave decision, I would call it brave, they wouldn't, that's what gives them life and joy. I know a family whose 18-year-old son took his own life. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. And they sat with the pieces of that all over their homes, their home. Just everybody, the siblings, just everybody. And the mother and the father, the father said uh, to me, he said, I'm told that I've got to go through grief counseling with my family or statistically we're very likely to fall apart. And he said, I can't tell you how much I don't want to sit and talk to somebody about this. So I drove myself to the counselor and I looked at her and I said, hey, you tell me how many sessions, how many times a week I'll be here every single time and I'm not going to like it. I'm going to do it because of my two other children and my wife. I'll be here every single time. Brave, not brave. That's brave. And what I want to observe to you is, is that when we are brave, when we have courage, we change the trajectory. We don't just save other lives, we save our life. We don't just bless other people, we bless ourselves. And so many of the things that God is trying to get you to do in your life to have the fullness of life and the richness of life come out of that space. And now what I want to do is read you the scripture. I want to read you scripture from John 15. And Jesus is going to show you how to have a brave faith. And in your last week, you've talked about all these aspects of courage and bravery. But in the last week, what I want to show you is the motivation that's underneath all all of the behaviors. So if we can see the text. This is John 15, verse 9. If you just follow with me on the screen, just read it there. As the Father has loved me, said Jesus, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that you may know my, what's the next word? Everybody say it, so that you may know my joy. joy. Oh, come on, even in the back. So that you may know my Joy. joy and that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, stops for a second. Here's what you need to know. This is in John 15, but if you read just a few verses later, a few chapters later, and I hope you'll do that later today, what you realize is this is what scholars call the farewell discourse. This is Jesus saying goodbye to his disciples. He's moving toward a cross. So he says, you know, I want, to, I want my joy to be in you and your joy to be complete. And then he says, I've said these things to you. Oh, I said that. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Now look at the next verse. No one has greater love than this to what? 
laid down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what the master is doing, but I call you friends because I have made known to you everything that I've heard from the Father. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving these commandments so that you may love one another. Can I observe to you that I've also as a pastor seen failures of love and failures of courage? Because we don't get it all right, do we? Please raise your hand if you have just knocked down the Christian life from the moment you converted. Just, I mean, if you've just been like, I got it all right, just show of hands. I'd like to meet all those. It's so disappointing. There's not even a hand in the air. And what I observe to you is that a failure of courage is almost always rooted in a failure of love. I think about the failure of courage of a person that I have known and they were lamenting <clears throat> at their job. It was in a conversation I was having and this person said, oh, I just feel, t- I just cringe every time I think about it. I said, what are you cringing about? This person said, I have a colleague at work who had an idea and it was a transformative idea and another colleague in a meeting heard, about, heard the idea and my colleague who had the idea just said it in the meeting but this person took it up to management and took it up and told management about it and management got super excited about it and in fact now we're acting on the idea and everybody thinks the idea is this person's idea and not my colleague's idea and I didn't speak up. What is that? It's a failure of courage. It's a failure to say, hey, uh, excuse me, it was here. The other day, a friend of mine shared that his mother, who's 88 years old and has always been in good health, she's always been in great health, she lives alone in her own home. Wouldn't we all celebrate that? And he said, mom, we got to have a conversation. And she said, what? And he said, she said, he said to her, if you would become, I know you're in great health, I know you've always had great health, but if you would have a health crisis, what are we going to do if you need nursing care? And she said two things. I never, ever want to leave this home, and if you ever take me out of this home, I'm going to be angry. And here's the second thing she said. I can't afford nursing care in this home. By the way, the other thing they don't talk about is money, because that really helps families when nobody talks about money. I don't know if you're aware of that. That's like super productive when you're trying to care for one another and nobody has the ability to talk about money. Don't even get me started. The point is this. Don't ever take me out of the house. I don't have enough money for 24-7 care. Third thing she said. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Brave, not brave. Not brave, friends. And the not brave part isn't her preference about where she receives care if something happens. The non-brave part is I don't want to talk about it. So when we look at bravery and we look at lack of bravery, we have to ask what motivates a brave faith. 
what enables people to do the courageous thing in the most difficult of seasons? How do we, how do we find the resilience necessary for the virtue of courage to exhibit itself? And Jesus has the answer, and the answer is in John 15, and if you'd look up at verse 12 on the screen, verse 12 and 13. This is my commandment, this is from the reading I just shared, that you, what? Love one another as I have loved you. In fact, read the next verse with me. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so what Jesus does is he makes this powerful connection between love and courage. Now, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping some of you by now are thinking. In fact, I'm hoping the Holy Spirit's tapping you on the shoulder. And I hope the Holy Spirit is, is tapping you saying, hey, this is about you. This scripture is about you. This moment is about you. There's this thing that you need to do. And when that moment comes in your life, whether it's right now or whether it happens next week, when it comes, here's the thing. Don't ask yourself, what is the brave thing to do? Because the problem with asking what's the brave thing to do is, many of us think, well, I'm not genetically brave. I mean, it's not on my DNA strand. I didn't get that. Other people are brave. I'm not very, I've had people say this to me, I'm just not very courageous. Instead, ask yourself this question. Don't ask what is the brave thing to do. Ask two questions. Ask yourself this, what is the most loving thing to do right now? See, the most loving thing the woman could have done is said, this whole conversation makes me upset, but I'm going to have it with you. That would have been loving to help her children with their anxiety about their mother. Second question I want you to ask is this. What would require me to lay a little bit of my life down for someone else right now? The man who goes to the counseling who says, I never want to talk about this, but goes to the counselor and says, when do I need to be here? How often? I'll be here every single time. He's laying a little bit of himself down. The couple with the daughter and the grandchildren, and they don't want it, but here it is. They're laying something of their life down. Their thoughts, their expectations, their fun. Those two questions, what's the loving thing to do? What's the thing that requires me to lay a little bit of my life down? Those are the questions I think Jesus teaches us. And the other thing I would observe to you is, we're not alone. We're not doing it on our own. Jesus said, hey, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And if Jesus chooses you when you're being asked to do the brave thing, it means he's like, hey, I'm just, I'm right here, right? I'm right here. I'm not leaving you alone. You're not up there. Like that would be frightening, wouldn't it? Yes, I know. I feel the same way. When they told me I could stay down here, I felt so much better about the whole experience. But but you're not up there alone. You're not. I'm here in your life. And that's the beauty of a rich faith in Christ is that when Jesus says, hey, it's you, I'm tapping you, I want want you to do this, we're not alone because he chose us. And being chosen is usually when the best of us begins to come out. 
And when we look at the courage Jesus showed in his own life, it's just all over the, it's, it's all over the, his narrative, it's all over his story. Think about, <clears throat> Jesus would, would teach in Galilee and crowds would come, people that he knew probably and some people, many they didn't, but he, he just crowds would show up. And these were people that were barely making it. They were, they were working ordinary jobs, probably subsistence level living in, in that region of Galilee. And they were just normal people. And he would begin to teach them and care about them as nobody ever had. And, and he was ushering them into the kingdom of God. And they would listen to his, his lessons about love and about forgiveness and about, about how to, to be a person who's living consistently with God's will. And as he did that, the religious leaders would stand up here and they would point and they're, well, there's only this he's not even legit and who does he think he is and it was constant criticism but when Jesus was criticized did he back away from these people did he say oh oh I'm being criticized I need to just sit down and keep my mouth shut no 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 why brave Jesus went to people nobody else cared about people with leprosy that people were afraid of highly communicable disease and and life-changing prostitutes tax collectors what the gospel of Luke broadly calls sinners I mean some of you all might have been there I don't know come on maybe if by the way if you've got a church and there are no sinners in it you're just not that interesting like you, you need to get the door a little bit wider to get some other folk in here and when Jesus hung out with those people and had transformational conversations and, and healed and forgave and showed love, he got nothing but rejection for it. Not from the sinners, not from those people, but from, again, this religious leaders who said if he, if he was legit, he would know who those people are and he wouldn't hang out with them. And you remember how he said, hey, the doctor doesn't go to the well. The doctor goes to the sick. How did he have that courage? Who should I love and what do I need to lay down? And in this text, Jesus is moving towards his cross. So what's the biggest element of the architecture in this room? Come on, you say things out loud. We're Methodists. We say things out loud. What is it? It's a cross, right? Now, did you notice that your cross in this worship space is similar to the cross in the other in the chapel? Long crosses, high up at the top comes the cross piece. And did you notice that there's not just one cross in the stained glass window? How many of them are there? Yeah, I counted three. I, I actually counted four, but I think the fourth one I imagined. <clears throat> but the idea is, this is a church that's centered on the thought that the love of God uniquely expresses itself in the atoning love of Christ the cross how does Jesus knowing he's going to Jerusalem and he'll be crucified how does he stick to it how does he stay the course when he knows the pain of, a, of nails into his flesh he knows the death that's coming it's going to be slow how does he make his way to the cross so that it's the central symbol in our sanctuaries how does he do that Brave or not brave? Brave. And it's all out of love. I think it's after the crucifixion that the disciples said, Do you hey, somebody needs to write this down. Do you remember when Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends? 
We ought to remember that. Because that's in the very architecture of the Christian faith. And the question I've got for you is this. How are you doing with that? Because your sanctification is not, what did I get? What did I get out of this life? I mean, we've got so many Christians living on, what do I get? Did I get my way? Did I get what I wanted? When in fact, the whole Christian life is not about, what did I get? But what did I give? Did I lay some part of my life down in order to get the joy that Jesus wanted to give me the whole time? You live your whole life like this. And you'll never get the joy of this. Who does God want me to love? How? What portion of my life is God asking me to lay down? When I was working on that book, I read stories of Medal of Honor recipients. The Medal of Honor is the military's uh, you know, highest award for valor in action. And if you read the stories in the, in the long form, not the short one like this happened, but but when the soldiers and the, and the people began to say, here's, here's what was going through my head when I did that, there is a theme that I picked up on. They weren't thinking of what's the brave thing to do right now. I mean, when they, when they jumped on the, the explosive device, when they ran in across the field of battle to rescue somebody, they weren't thinking, what's the brave thing to do? I want to be the brave, I want to get the award. No, no, no. What they were thinking was this. Who do I want to take care of? It wasn't the face just of the fellow comrade. It was the face of the photograph of the spouse and the children and the array of relationships that would be left empty without that person that they then said, I've got to do this. There is this connection between love and courage. And it's always there and it's not just in the Christian literature it's in life <clears throat> the parents who both work all day and some of you are these people right now the parents who work all day at their jobs who care for their children who pay their bills who save for the future who provide moments of joy and laughter who listen deeply to one another who have conflict because who married doesn't amen but who work through the conflict Rather than ignoring it, rather than sidestepping it, or being such cowards that they can't ever face it, but bravely look at one another and resolve it, who deal with disappointment, who embrace occasional hardship only to repeat that pattern month after month after month after month, and they are so full of joy, so full of joy and love that they have the courage to face whatever we glibly call real life as a space of daily sacrifice for those they love. And they do this because when they see their children smile, it fills their heart to the brim. And they think to themselves in moments, when a child runs past and laughs, it's all worth it. The courage of their action is motivated by the love of the relationship. And not just with each other, but all the relationships around them. And so, it is not courage that makes us love. It is love that gives us courage. And that's, if I could just have you remember one thing that I said. Not what this, I mean, remember everything the scripture said and one thing I said. 
If I could get you to remember one thing I said, it would be this. It is not courage that makes us love. It is love that gives us courage. And that's why Jesus said, this is my mild suggestion that you love. No, he didn't say that. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And remember, he said, you're going to need to remember this. You're going to see an example of this soon. So, so when it happens, I want you to remember this. Greater love has no one than this, than that person would lay down their life for the friends. And I call you friends. I, I don't call you servants anymore. Servants don't know what the master's doing. I call you friends because everything the father has told you, told me, I've told you. And I chose you. You didn't choose me. I bet that right now, some of us are thinking about things, hard things, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I find that in my life, the Holy Spirit is typically saying, stop that, start that, or continue this. Start, stop, and continue are three things the Holy Spirit, God says. I'm a pretty simple person. And I find that the Lord communicates to me pretty frequently, stop Start, continue. Is the Holy Spirit saying to you right now, start, stop, continue? And you know what, friends? Not just for your personal life, but for your church. Because you know what? There are a lot of people since this pandemic that are just sort of backing away from church, being like, well, somebody else will do it. Somebody else will feel the calling. I'm sort of taking care of me. Hey, taking care of you is coming to an end. Because the Christian life is not take care of me, take care of me, take care of me, get, get, get. The Christian life is about giving your life for others. It just is. Not to wear you out, not to destroy you, but so that you will have the joy that will keep you full. What's the Lord asking you to do as an act of love? What's the Lord saying? I want you to lay a little bit of yourself down. Well, as you can see, I'm kind of impassioned about the topic. But I hope I haven't been a turkey. Amen.